Let us pray. Father God, magnify your glory for us this morning so that we might, like the songbirds of spring, sing a new song of praise to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there will be those who might say, oh, you're in Genesis on Easter morning? Aren't you supposed to be in an Easter text this morning? And to that kind of question, I, I want a thought experiment with me for a moment. Have you ever thought to consider when it comes to that first Easter day that Jesus rose from the dead, what the gospel's account for him doing and spending more time in doing than anything else? Morning for two individuals was a unique individual. It was a unique morning in that first Easter morning. And we only know the name of one. One was named Cleopas. He was a, a disciple of Jesus. The other is unnamed, but we won't know who it was until we get to heaven. But you see, they, they woke up on that first Easter morning. And, and they, it seems like they might have even woken up to have the women wake them up and say Jesus was risen. And not only did they hear the women say that, well, not Jesus is risen, but that Jesus was not in the grave, that he was at, 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 not in the grave. But not only did he hear that report from the women, but they also reported that angels had told the women that Jesus was not dead, that Jesus was alive. And so Cleopas and this other disciple, hearing this good news, do the most reasonable thing possible. They start walking seven miles to Emmaus. It, it, it is. You should chuckle. It's a humorous story. Here they are. They're hearing the women say the grave is empty, that angels have told them Christ is risen, that Christ arose. And they go, you know what? It's a good time to get out of Jerusalem. It's a good time to get out of Dodge. Let's go walk to Emmaus. And of course, in Luke chapter 24, we learn that Christ, while he is veiled in, in, in the, their eyes, he walks alongside of them to Emmaus. And as he, they start walking, they, they start talking about Jesus. And Christ, unknowing to them that they don't know he's Christ yet, starts starting with the book of Genesis, starts revealing how the Old Testament foreshadowed his death and resurrection. And so actually, the most old school Easter morning thing you can do is to start in the book of Genesis, because that's what Christ did, and begin to show how the Old Testament anticipated Christ. Our passage today, we will see anticipates Christ. Also, just an aside, they totally miss the message. They totally miss what Jesus is telling them until not only does Jesus share the word, but until they have sacrament with <laughs> that he breaks the bread. It's then their eyes are open. Jesus leaves them at that time. They run seven miles back to Jerusalem, they see Peter. Peter says, hey, I've seen the risen Lord. And then Jesus, taking a shortcut, appears in their midst. The majority of that first Easter morning, Jesus was doing what we're going to do today. 
going into the Old Testament in order to see the shadows of Christ. And so that's where we begin. So we are going old school this morning. Because that's where Jesus began. So we return to this text we've been in the last three weeks. The shepherd's boy story who closes out the book of Genesis. To whom is seeking the brothers and yet the brothers hate him. But Joseph was not to be deterred. See, his father Jacob, now called Israel, had sent Joseph on a mission, making sure that his brothers were safe. Back in verses 13 and 14. And so the father sends the son in order to recover his brothers. And Joseph finds that his brothers had moved on from Shechem, and they'd gone on to Dothan. It was a stronghold kind of region. When it came to what would later become northern Israel, if you controlled Dothan, you basically controlled the northern areas. It's close to the more famous biblical area of Megiddo. And the brothers can see Joseph coming from far off. Remember, Joseph is covered in a cloak of, of many cover, colors that set him apart. He would have stood out in the wilderness, a gift uniquely given from his father to show that he uniquely treasures this one son in the midst of all other sons. And so these brothers see Joseph from coming from afar and notice their first comment about him. Here comes the dreamer. Here comes the dreamer. It's not the cloak of many colors that was the problem. Their main problem is, is this special prophetic relationship that Joseph has with God, that Joseph is sharing the visions of God. He's not the first patriarch or the first one in this group to have encounters with the living God in dreams, but they do not like him because of it. And it makes the other sons of Israel want to kill him. Joseph is coming to make sure they are safe on behalf of the father who is showing his love for them and sending his favorite son for them to make sure they're okay. And so even though the other sons constantly are doubting his love, the father is showing his love for the other 12 by Joseph coming to the brothers. And yet as he comes for them, they are planning to kill the father's favorite son. And by verse 20, the plan is, Let's kill him and basically dump the body into one of these pits. Now, let's talk about the pits uh, that we're, we're referring to here. On the front of your bulletin is actually a, a possible pit that for the pit that Joseph was found in. Uh, why I say possible is pits like this dotted the landscape of Dothan. This is not a desert area. This is an area that usually had about 20 to 30 inches of rain a year. And basically what you would do is you would create this cistern underground uh, along a slope. You'd want to slope and so that it would pull the water into the cistern and you would kind of build it out with limestone and then you would plaster it and it would become a water storage container during those times where you didn't have water. One cistern usually was about 20 feet deep. It could feed up to 5,000 sheep daily for a year. And, and these just dotted the landscape of, of this region. Uh, that's why they, they have no idea which one is specific to Joseph's story. But they want to kill him. 
and just throw them in one of those pits. Throw them in one of those darkened areas. And you can never hope to get out of them because that pit would be so kind of plastered over. You would need help from another. And so you kind of get a glimpse of, of what this pit would have been. And so this first plan was to kill the shepherd boy Joseph, dump the body, and say a fierce animal ate him. And remember again, what are they most angry about when it comes to Joseph? That he is a messenger of God's word. And yet God's word tells us, blessed are those who are reviled on, on behalf of bringing God's word to bear. If people don't like you because you tell them about God, that actually means you're especially blessed by God. We don't really think about it that way, do we? We kind of think of, uh, we, we've bought into this privatization of our faith in the world, that we're actually really blessed if we avoid sharing our faith uh, at all times, because then it's, it's kind of go with the flow. A good old Californian like me can appreciate that idea of going with the flow. And yet God actually says the exact opposite in the scripture. You're really blessed when people stop liking you because you share too much of my, actually one of the places, there's so many places in scriptures. You can go to, for instance, first Peter chapter four, verse 14, to kind of see this principle. And so what the brothers continue to hate most about Joseph is the fact that God speaks directly to him in prophetic dreams and that he shares that revelation from God. And they want to kill him. And they want to make it look like an animal ate him. And I should remind the, the modern reader, this was still a time where it was very likely to die by animal. I mean, maybe you're afraid to go into the ocean. You think of maybe sharks will eat you. Or maybe you've done what we did. We camped one time at Jenny Lake at the Grand Tetons. And, and every night, uh, as we had milk-fed babies, uh, the, the snout of a grizzly bear would uh, stick into our tent, basically, push the lining of our tent, and I'd set off the car alarm on our van. You know, th these are people who actually live under threat of, of things like lions and tigers. I was just reading a study that was done in Africa, in a national park in Africa, and they have baboons and they have monkeys in this park. And so they were kind of trying to figure out how the baboons were dying and how the monkeys were dying. What were the percentage of, like, how each one died? 70% of the baboons were being eaten by African leopards. That's how they died. Think of baboons. They're always on the defense, always on the lookout. And apparently it always happened at night. 50% of the monkeys, more than 50% of the monkeys were dying by African leopards. They were being eaten, though, during the day. I have no idea why tigers, like... Uh, Baboons more at night, monkeys in the day. There's, yeah, that's beyond me. But let's get back into this. This was a time period where sending a son in a colorful cloak, alone in the wilderness, alone by himself, in a region that just recently this family caused great, a great stir in and a great controversy in with Simeon and Levi, Jacob was showing remarkable love for his 11 other sons. And Joseph was taking this young shepherd boy a great risk to travel such wilderness all on his own. And yet, while the father Israel still sends this son Joseph, this love act, 
by the father. The other brothers entirely miss the love that's being displayed and decide they want to kill Joseph. And so the eldest son, Reuben, he hears of the diabolical plans of his 10 other brothers. And even though Reuben had led nothing short of a fight or a rebellion uh, a short time earlier, as we had covered in previous sermons, he is stepping in in order to try to de-escalate his, the murderous plans of his brothers. Maybe he had repented, uh, but of all the brothers, Reuben is truly the one who speaks up before Joseph gets there. And he convinces the brothers not to commit the sin of Cain, not to spill the blood of Joseph. And so they de-escalate a little bit. They decide to just throw him into a pit, throw the brother with the prophetic visions from God into that pit. And we'll later on discover that Reuben, Reuben had given them this plan because he hoped to save Joseph from that pit, to be his brother's keeper. And so as Joseph approaches in verse 23, Reuben's plans are heated and, and it seems to imply, strongly imply Reuben leaves the scenes, that scene as if he wants to wash his hands from it all. But the 10 remaining frenzy brothers of the shepherd, they still strip the favored son of his clothes, that unique robe that he was adorned with of many colors that the father had granted the son in whom he had uniquely loved. And they threw him into the pit without water and left the one in whom the father sent for dead. They left him for dead. And Joseph could not climb out on his own. He doesn't even raise a, uh, we don't even hear in this story, him raising a word in his defense. And then what does verse 25 tell us they did next? The 10 brothers who had committed such gross wickedness feast. They had worked up quite an appetite for themselves. While the favorite shepherd, Joseph, is recorded not again saying even a single word from the pit. As we pointed out when we first got into this chapter, Joseph, along with Daniel, stands unique in all the Old Testament scriptures. It's not that they never sinned. It's that the word of God never reveals what their sin struggles were. In one sense, you could actually say that Moses is, is kind of writing this story of Joseph as an example of the first suffering servant. The idea that a godly suffering servant is someone who, even though they may have in certain situations done no specific wrong or, or, or being at fault or deserving such suffering, that sometimes we will still suffer. And in this moment, we must acknowledge a hard lesson of life we don't like learning. It's not what the biggest churches in this country want to convince you of. It's not that the most faithful to God in this life are promised wealth, health, and, and sunshine and rainbows. That they will be kept from all ideas of suffering. No, actually, Joseph was being led to it. He is the most faithful son of Israel at this time, and yet for being the most faithful, it means he will suffer most of all. So the Bible doesn't promise us prosperity always in this life, but what the Bible assures the faithful of is that God will ultimately bring good out of all evil, and God will ultimately bring joy out of all pain. So that's your biblical promise this Easter morning. 
God's word assures us this Easter morning, he will bring good out of all evil and joy out of all pain for his, those in whom he loves. And we know because of the cross of Christ, because of the resurrection of Christ, that promise will not always be fulfilled in this mortal life. But sometimes it will take a resurrection. It will take the life to come. God is a God of redemption. God is a God of restoration. He does not allow our pain and suffering to go on forever. However, he will allow the righteous to suffer for his namesake. And so how can we overcome the struggles of our own lives? By looking, by hoping, by trusting in the simple promise of God that he will bring good out of evil and joy out of pain. Joseph in the pit, all he would have had in that moment, think about it, all he has at that moment in the darkness as he's looking up to the sky would have been the promises of God, the revelation of God, that God revealed that there was a better day coming for Joseph as he looked up in that cistern of death. That was all he had to hold on to, that God had promised him something. And his brothers ate while he struggled with that, a most wicked meal, even after betraying a brother who had only come to make sure they were safe, only at the request of their loving father. I couldn't help but think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, after the cross, we, we know of them mocking and scoffing at the cross. They, they've helped set in motion the events of Christ's death. And what did they go home and do? They went home and celebrated the Passover with their families. With not a care in the world of what they just did, sending an innocent son adorned in perfect righteousness to his death, and they went to supposedly celebrate the Sabbath, even though they had killed the Lord of the Sabbath. Can you see the shadows, the patterns? But then something happens next in verse 25 that a lot of biblical readers don't catch or misunderstand. But Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, reveals to us that as the brothers eat, in verse 25, a caravan of Ishmaelites from Gilead that are trading in gum, balm, and myrrh are taking those items where? They're taking them down to Egypt. Now, myrrh, most Christians know. What does myrrh symbolize in the Bible? Death. Death. However, we're talking about Egypt. They're taking these things down to Egypt. Egypt has its own death ceremony. What is famous about Egyptian death? What do they do when it comes to their dead, especially their important dead? They, put, they make mummies out of them. Not mummies, mummies. And to make a mummy, you needed three ingredients. Anyone want to guess what they are? Gun, bomb, and myrrh. We have Egyptian traders. By the way, who's mummified in Egypt? The pharaohs and the pharaoh's family are mummified in Egypt. We have these Ishmaelite Midian traders that are trading in Egyptian death practices. They're headed down into Egypt. And we're going to say there's no shadows of the New Testament story, of the story of the gospel, of the raised Lord in this book. And Judas speaks up in this moment. He sees these traders. These were wealthy traders. They trade with the Pharaohs. 
And, and, and don't misunderstand what Judah says here. Some people want to make Judah's uh, aims noble. The ESV does an excellent job translating this. Notice the words chosen. Judah, as he's eating, seeing these traitors, he says, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Now, if you're talking profits and sales, are you foremost worried about saving your brother? No. You're, you're worried about getting a little coin in your pocketbook. Now, the Old Testament, of course, is written in what biblical language? Hebrew. New Testament is written, of course, in what biblical language? Greek. Anyone want to guess how you say Judah's name in the Greek? Judas. So if someone is named Judah in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, his name is Judas. See, when Judas sold Jesus for a few measly pieces of silver, that was the second time that happened in Scripture. The first time a brother betrayed another brother with coins was actually here in this text. Again, what a magnificent book this is. This is 4,000 years ago, and it's telling us the Easter story. Judas in the New Testament of 12 disciples is the second. And so these merchants of the ingredients of death, they trade silver coins to Judah in the Hebrew, Judas in the Greek, for control over the life of Joseph. To have Joseph handed over to them. Starting to see why we don't have to run to the same four texts every Easter morning. And so the descendants of the outcast son of Abraham, Ishmael, they now, through the godless actions of the chosen family, Isaac, now have control over the favored son, Joseph, who is now enslaved, and through his being enslaved, all others will ultimately follow into slavery down into Egypt. And so Joseph is sold as Reuben returns to the pit, and Reuben, he is discouraged, likely thinking he now has an opportunity to save his brother, to be the good brother's keeper. And yet Joseph is already gone, sold for a few pieces of silver, handed over to, the, to those who trade in death. And you can see the despair of Reuben in verse 30. But the brothers don't seem to care. They are now well-fed and they are well-paid in handing over their brother to the outcast. And so they took the robe and a goat is sacrificed in order to, order to cover up their wickedness. They use goat's blood to try and hide the guilt of their sins, and yet the kind of guilt they need to be absolved from will take far more than a simple goat to fix. It will take nothing less than the favored son of the father to, to fix this matter and redeem this family through his triumphal return by his lordship saving the chosen family unto himself. And I'm being intentionally vague at this moment because, yes, that is all true of the son Joseph, but it is obviously far more true uh, and infinitely true and eternally wonderful to declare of Jesus Christ, the one true Son of God, our Lord and Savior. And in verse 32, 
They present the blood-covered robe to their father. Wise not to try to explain too much. Rather, remember, Jacob had sent Joseph out on a dangerous jersey, a journey in, in, in a covering that he knew stood out from all others. He knew it was risky. He knew the risk, but he loved his other sons. And notice the brother's words in verse 32. They betray the false innocence of the rest of the scene. Actually, the words here are most commonly linked to the callous words that the elder brother says when the prodigal, the meal for the prodigal is being celebrated when he's upset at the festival feast and celebration. They state as they hand their father the blood-soaked garment, they state, this is your son's robe. This is not our brother's robe, or is this our brother's robe? This is, is this your son's robe? Showing the dividing wall of hostility they had towards him. And Jacob fills in the blank, yes, it's my son's robe. And in looking at the garment, he concludes that an evil beast has killed him. And the father's grief is great over losing the son. And Jacob goes into mourning, and the sons hypocritically arise as if to offer him comfort. And yet Jacob will not receive it. Rather, the father declares, I shall go down into the grave to my son in the morning. In the morning. And little does Jacob know, he will go down into a land still known for its graves. It is the land of all graves. It's Egypt. Hey, still, tourists go there today to go see their graves. You know, we just had someone who came from Germany to, in part, see our cemetery. People go to Egypt, pile into that country to see their graves. Jacob will go down into the graves and see his son, but not before he died. Jacob will live to see new life through Joseph, the good shepherd boy. Life the family would have never received without Joseph suffering as a servant of the father, who went down into the pit when the brothers wanted his death, and later down into Egypt with traitors of the instruments of death. God will use this betrayal of the sons of Israel to sow at the end of the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, a great redemption story, a great story of redemption through the shepherd boy who in being faithful to the father was cast into the pit of death and yet ultimately will emerge in order to deliver his household from its own demise through his lordship. And we have this ray of hope expressed by Moses in the final verse of chapter 37. Joseph finds himself purchased by the captain of the guard of Pharaoh. It seems as if Moses already wants to hint to us that this betrayal of Joseph will usher in God's prophetic promises, that even though it seems like there is no victory here, it ultimately will result in victory through the circumstances and the sovereign hand of God. The betrayal of the Son by the sons of Israel was how God Accomplish the deliverance of his people, his household, his family. And the deepest pit and the greatest enemy was death itself. And so we close on the two verses in chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 in Revelation, which have 
often confused people. And, and Revelation confuses a lot of people. Because we tend to think Revelation always has to speak of events that are to come, events in the future. Especially in America, it's, uh, that's been the popular understanding of the entire book. And yet, there, there is this unique moment, and almost all commentators pick up on it, in chapter 5, and some have suggested, and I think this is a compelling suggestion, that maybe John, in this unique vision of chapter 5, that stands alone, isn't so much talking about the future anymore, but maybe in chapter 5 of Revelation, John could be looking into the past. Whether, whether you agree with that or not is not the point. But this is a heavenly celebration, clearly, of Jesus' victory upon the cross, of his resurrection. Because while Jesus' enemies dying on the days that his body laid in tomb, our Lord was still alive in the heavenly places. And some have wondered, is John specifically in Revelation chapter 5, is it, is, does it have to be in the future? Or maybe is he talking about he's been transported to a look into heaven when the sun was three days in the grave? Because in verse 5, one of the 24 elders, whom a great many commentators point out, seem to, it could be even patriarchal figures or figures from the Old Testament, tells John to stop weeping. Because the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open in the scroll and its seven seals. And there are several scrolls throughout the book of Revelation, almost universally, but almost universally, this scroll is most often seen as a scroll over the power of all time and history and the power over life and death. And John uniquely talks about a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Remember, John has already seen the risen Christ, and yet he uses this language, accepting and opening this specific scroll. And the word for slain there, I'm going to get too technical for a moment, then I'm going to back up, is in two perfect participles. And what does that mean? I barely know what that means. But it means this. It means that this victory of the Lion of Judah, the one with roots from, that extend from the root of Jesse, this lamb who was slain, the victory of his resurrection, the victory of the cross, does not just stop on Easter morning. It actually is testifying of the enduring nature of the victory of the cross, of the victory of the resurrection, so that we don't just have to consider Easter morning as bystanders or spectators, but actually we have a part in that resurrection power that we, in one sense, in the day that we pass on to the Lord, we will experience our own triumphal resurrection. That's what the, the Greek there is expressing, that basically... It's making sure we understand we are connected to this resurrection event. We are not celebrating just 2,000 years ago. We are celebrating the fact that for the thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years, God has been faithful to redeem his family through the Lion of Judah. 
and the beautiful Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that through his power, it's an enduring power of resurrection for all those who die in faith. For everyone buried out there who died in faith, they know the power of resurrection. They have been a part, they've been engrafted into the resurrection story of Easter. And one day too, as we pass on in death, we too will be engrafted into the resurrection story of Easter. And we know it because he's both a lion and a lamb. And the lion here is magnified in such a way that it's like John is saying, he is the beast of our beast. He is the most powerful of all powerful. There's no other beast. There's no other evil thing that can devour him. He stands alone in power over the grave. And not only does he just have all this power, but he is spotless and beautiful and perfect. He is the sinless lamb. And so who would even contend with someone so beautiful, so perfect, that basically the father can't help but look upon his beautiful lamb, his beautiful son, and whom he cast into the wilderness of this world and allowed to die the death that we deserve to die. And we in our sin had a hand in that death. That our God looks upon that son covered in righteousness. And he says, not only do I love the son, but I love all those who have their roots have their very being through the power of that son and who believe upon that son. And so the gift of Easter is not just a gift celebrated at the dawn of spring once a year. The gift of Easter is for all those who die in faith. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the fact that you devoured death itself that first Easter morning. And then you took the time to explain it to us. Those who hear of this story and just say, okay, let me carry on. Let me just go on about my life. Let me go walk to a mass. You seek after the loss. You seek after us when we lack understanding. You seek after us even though oftentimes we conspire to do evil against you. You are long-suffering indeed. And through your lordship, through your trials and agony and suffering, you have saved us. And you have, through the roots of the tree of life that was the cross, through you being the good and ultimate gardener, you have given roots of life everlasting for all those who believe in faith. And so we thank you. We thank you that we do not just celebrate Easter one day, but we celebrate the power of resurrection every day. This is our hope. This is our promise. And we have received it through the Son of God, who is faithful unto your name. Amen.